September 11, 2001. For nearly two hours, the world watched in horror as two of the world's tallest buildings blazed. Just before 10.30 a.m., the World Trade Center's North Tower finally collapsed. As the tower came down, debris struck another part of the World Trade Center complex, Building 7. As fires ignited the 47-story building, firefighters soon reached a grim realization. There was no conceivable way to save Building 7. The collapse had damaged the water lines, and the sprinkler system was completely ineffective. Later that afternoon, an FDNY commander called the leaseholder of Building 7, Larry Silverstein, and told him that the likelihood of saving the building was low. Silverstein knew that the death toll among first responders was rising. So he told the commander to, quote, pull it. Firefighters were evacuated from the area, and around 5.20 p.m., World Trade Center 7 collapsed. Little did Silverstein know that those two simple words, pull it, would become the rallying cry of conspiracy theorists. They clung to this phrase as proof. September 11th wasn't just carried out by a faction of Islamist terrorists. More nefarious parties, motivated by money and politics, were behind the deadliest attack on U.S. soil in 60 years. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify original from ParCast. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. This is part three of our six-episode special on the events of September 11th, 2001. This will be the last episode of this special to air on both conspiracy theories and unexplained mysteries. So to keep following along, be sure to subscribe to Conspiracy Theories for free on Spotify. In the previous two episodes, we walk through the moment-by-moment developments of September 11th. After hours of watching the destruction live on TV, millions of Americans went to bed that night with more questions than answers. Today, we're going to explore the official story as presented by the various investigations that were conducted after the attacks. We'll dive into the rise of Osama bin Laden and his terrorist organization, Al-Qaeda. Then we'll examine how the official 9-11 Commission report led to various fringe theories, with a lot of help from the internet. We'll have all that and more right after this. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up can be really bad for you in the long run and have some terrible consequences, and this isn't a conspiracy theory. The more you let things build up, the more of a toll it can take on your mental health. I know for me, in dealing with some traumatic events in my life, I had the tendency to think, well, they've already happened, I'm okay, other people have it worse, it doesn't matter much. And through therapy, was really able to understand how those events impacted me and changed how I'd started to see the world in ways that weren't great. 
and we're sometimes making my life worse. So therapy or dealing with any traumatic events you've had might really help you in terms of how you can live in the present moment now. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also really easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash conspiracy. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. If you're interested in crazy stories from the wild world of organized crime, scams, gangs, cartels, mafias, drug dealers, and everything fun like that, have we got a podcast for you. The Underworld Podcast is hosted by two conflict journalists, Danny Gold and Sean Williams who have reported on all sorts of dangerous people in dangerous places. Every week, they bring you a new episode on international organized crime from a new corner of the globe. You can find the Underworld podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. For the majority of Americans, September 11, 2001, was a complete surprise. Pearl Harbor was the last time the United States had been attacked by foreign combatants in a major way. The American people were confused, devastated, and angry. To many, it was unfathomable that their country could be the victim of a surprise attack especially since early news reports indicated that the attacks weren't carried out by foreign military, but rather a stateless terror organization called Al-Qaeda. In the years that followed, multiple investigations were convened to answer the questions many Americans still had. What follows is the official story, taken from journalists, historians, and the 9-11 Commission report. The path to September 11th like so many other world events, dates back to the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union. In 1978, Afghanistan's Soviet-backed Communist Party seized control of the nation's government. Right away, the new government began a brutal campaign of suppression and made secular reforms that diminished the influence of Islam. The vast majority of Afghans were, to say the least, displeased. Throughout the next year, various insurgencies broke out, and on Christmas Eve 1979, the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan to put the rebellion to rest. For roughly the next decade, the Soviet and Afghan governments fought a brutal war against a coalition of Islamic guerrilla groups known as the Mujahideen. The Soviets were not prepared for the guerrilla tactics of the Mujahideen. They were shocked at how the ragtag group swiftly raided military outposts and disappeared into the mountains without a trace. 
The success of the Mujahideen inspired Islamists around the Middle East, particularly in Saudi Arabia. And no one was more inspired to join the cause than a 20-something-year-old from an affluent Saudi family, Osama bin Laden. Osama bin Laden was beyond wealthy. Thanks to his family's construction fortune, the young bin Laden was set to inherit several million dollars after his father died in 1967, though exact figures vary widely. But bin Laden was never really on a path to lead the family business. As a devout Sunni Muslim, by the early 1980s, he fell under the sway of Islamism. Islamism is basically a political ideology rooted in Islamic religious teachings. As journalist Lawrence Wright put it, the Islamists wanted to completely reshape society, imposing Islamic values on all aspects of life so that every Muslim could achieve his purest spiritual expression. Some believe that the only way to achieve that goal was through violence, including Osama bin Laden. In the early 1980s, bin Laden settled on his mission. He'd help the Mujahideen defeat the Soviets and turn Afghanistan into an Islamist state. Initially, bin Laden financed Afghan warriors with his own wealth. His family contacts within the Saudi government also helped funnel cash to the insurgents. One source estimates that bin Laden brought in $50 million a year for the Mujahideen. However, bin Laden wasn't their only financial backer. The CIA dedicated hundreds of millions of dollars annually to the Mujahideen. According to journalist Steve Cole, about $250 million was allocated in 1985 alone. However, Cole also notes that the CIA archives have no record of any contact with bin Laden during the 1980s. In fact, the CIA wasn't even aware of bin Laden until the late 80s. Whether this is true, or if it's one of the finest cover-ups in modern history, the fact remains that the U.S. and bin Laden were at least fighting a common enemy. Throughout the mid-1980s, Osama bin Laden's views expanded. The Soviets weren't the only enemies of Islam. All infidels needed to be dealt with, including the United States and Israel. To ensure their continued efforts in the region, bin Laden, along with other prominent Islamists, formed an organization and called it The Base, or in Arabic, Al-Qaeda. In February 1989, the Soviets retreated from Afghanistan in humiliation. Bin Laden interpreted it as proof a small group of holy fighters could take on a major superpower and win. A year later, bin Laden argued this very point to the Saudi government. In the summer of 1990, Iraqi tyrant Saddam Hussein was poised to invade Saudi Arabia. Bin Laden told the Saudi government that he could raise an army to repel the Iraqis, just as he had done against the Soviets. The Saudi government declined his offer and instead made a deal with the United States. Bin Laden was incensed. To him, it was embarrassing to watch Americans, including Christians, Jews, and women, defend his own country. It made Saudi Arabia look weak. 
Bin Laden didn't hide his feelings, and as a result of his public criticism, the Saudi government expelled him from the kingdom. Eventually, he was denounced by his own family. For the next five years, Bin Laden lived in Sudan, expanding al-Qaeda's influence. By 1996, he formed an alliance with Afghanistan's new Islamic regime, the Taliban. Two years later, an Egyptian Islamist, Ayman al-Zawahiri, agreed to a formal alliance between his own organization and al-Qaeda. And together, bin Laden and al-Zawahiri issued what they referred to as a fatwa against the United States. A fatwa is a ruling on Islamic law issued by a religious scholar, although bin Laden and al-Zawahiri were not qualified scholars. Nevertheless, their 1998 fatwa listed three points against the United States, their continued military presence in Saudi Arabia, their goal of destroying Iraq through sanctions, and finally, their relationship with Israel. In the eyes of bin Laden and al-Zawahiri, the only way to atone for these crimes was through bloodshed. They declared war on the United States and urged Muslims around the world to find and kill Americans, even civilians. In August 1998, Al-Qaeda simultaneously bombed American embassies in Kenya and Tanzania. More than 220 people died and over 4,500 were injured. In 2000, Al-Qaeda bombed the USS Cole a guided missile destroyer while it was refueling off the coast of Yemen. 17 U.S. Navy sailors were killed and another 37 were injured. But their biggest attack was on September 11th. Even before the 1998 fatwa, plans for the September 11th attacks were emerging. All the way back in 1996, a Pakistani Islamist named Khalid Sheikh Muhammad approached bin Laden with several ideas about airplane attacks. Muhammad was inspired by his nephew, Ramzi Youssef, one of the terrorists who orchestrated the 1993 World Trade Center bombing. But Khalid Sheikh Muhammad had grander visions than his nephew. In 1999, he presented bin Laden with an updated plan using nine hijacked planes to crash into various U.S. targets. Bin Laden was open to the idea. He believed that hitting the right targets would lead to the dissolution of the United States government. Ultimately, it was agreed that four airplanes were enough. In total, 19 men were recruited to participate in the attacks, 15 from Saudi Arabia, two from the United Arab Emirates, one from Egypt, and one from Lebanon. Throughout 2000, the 19 men, either in pairs or individually, slowly made their way into the United States. They set up camp in places like San Diego and Southern Florida, taking flying lessons and waiting to be given their targets. By the summer of 2001, the targets were narrowed down to the World Trade Center, the Pentagon, and either the White House or the U.S. Capitol. On the morning of September 11, 2001, the attacks were carried out, and all but one hijacked plane hit their intended targets. About a year after the attacks, an independent commission was established by Congress. 
Nearly two years later, in July 2004, the 9-11 Commission final report was released. After interviewing thousands of witnesses, including members of the CIA, FBI, and the White House, the report concluded that while the attacks were shocking, they shouldn't have been a surprise to the government. For years, Osama bin Laden had made it clear that he wanted to kill Americans. According to the commission, it was the inadequate assessments of the American intelligence community that led to his success. A paperback version of the commission report was published and became a bestseller. Americans pored over the pages and felt satisfied, if crestfallen, to finally learn the truth. However, some readers noticed quite a few discrepancies between the report and the footage they'd seen on TV. They weren't convinced that the government was being completely honest. Soon, a movement began to grow. Born in the dark recesses of internet chat rooms and quickly brought to the mainstream, conspiracy theorists took it upon themselves to find the real truth about 9-11. And one documentary was determined to prove that 9-11 wasn't just an attack by Al-Qaeda, it was an inside job. Coming up, the internet sparks doubt about September 11th. Imagine living with a secret so big that if anyone ever found out, it would change everything. Imagine carrying that secret with you every day, desperate to one day get it off your chest. Do you think you could take a secret like that to the grave? I'm Estefania Hageman, host of the new podcast series, Deathbed Confessions, the show where we dive deep into the most explosive things people have admitted to while drawing their last breath. From murder, fake identities, heists, illicit affairs, and even top government secrets. This season on Deathbed Confessions, we investigate cases like Frank Thorogood, the construction worker who claimed that the drowning of Rolling Stones founder Brian Jones was no accident. Margaret Gibson, a silent film actress who, while dying of a heart attack, confessed to one of the most famous unsolved crimes in Hollywood history. And ex-CIA officer Howard Hunt, who on his deathbed confessed to playing a role in the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, airing episodes weekly starting July 21st. Follow and listen to Deathbed Confessions for free on Spotify. Now back to the story. In the face of seemingly incomprehensible tragedies, outlandish and dangerous theories can often rise. The September 11th attacks were no exception. In the immediate aftermath of the attacks, the internet was ablaze with hoaxes. Photoshopped images of the devil's face in the smoke or a man on the observation deck just as Flight 11 was about to hit the North Tower. And all of these hoaxes were easily debunked. But when it came to the why and the how of September 11th, conspiracy theories were fairly muted. In the weeks after the attacks, just about every American believed that Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda were responsible. Al-Qaeda disagreed with the U.S. presence in the Middle East and with the American way of life, and that's all there was to it. But the timing of the 9-11 Commission report coincided with the rise of internet culture. 
Websites and peer-to-peer -peer networks made sharing videos, both amateur and professional, easier than ever before. No longer confined to seedy, text-only chat rooms, conspiracy theorists now had the means to edit and upload videos. This meant they could string together their evidence to counter the so-called official analysis. Arguably, the most influential of these videos was the 2005 internet documentary, Loose Change. While it might look amateurish today, Loose Change was innovative for its time. Aesthetically, it laid the foundation for internet conspiracy videos to come. Hyperactive music cues, flashy text, and 3D models. But what really made Loose Change revolutionary was its structure. It wove fringe claims from the most obscure parts of the internet into a cohesive, compelling narrative. It invited the viewer to wonder, was the commission report the whole story? Loose Change helped popularize some of the most famous 9-11 conspiracy theories. For example, that fires caused by jet fuel shouldn't have been hot enough to melt the steel beams of the towers. Theorists gathered their own video footage, eyewitness testimony, and scientific evidence to allege that the so-called attack was actually a controlled demolition. To investigate these rumors, a team of reporters from Popular Mechanics spoke with experts all over the U.S., including the FAA, the Air National Guard, and the National Transportation Safety Board. They came back with a simple answer. Other mitigating factors beyond just jet fuel had weakened the steel frames. According to engineering professor Foreman Williams out of UC San Diego, quote, the jet fuel was the ignition force. It burned for maybe 10 minutes, but it was the rest of the stuff burning afterward that was responsible for the heat transfer that eventually brought the towers down. On top of that, the fireproofing insulation at the World Trade Center was never field tested. Had there been testing, deficiencies would have likely been found, especially since the bulk of the fireproofing was only half an inch thick. The Port Authority knew the towers had poor fireproofing. In fact, they had decided to redo the fireproofing in 1999, increasing the thickness to an inch and a half. But by September 2001, only a total of 30 floors between the two buildings had been upgraded, with much of the fireproofing destroyed on impact and the rest of it known to be inadequate. The fires easily spread. The building's columns began to soften and buckle, making collapse inevitable. And as for the melted steel, in November 2001, the New York Times reported that there were still fires burning two months after the attacks. As experts talking to Popular Mechanics noted, the debris at the bottom of the rubble likely grew increasingly hot, reaching high enough temperatures to melt steel. But melted steel isn't the only piece of evidence for the controlled demolition theory. Theorists also point to the collapse of Building 7 which housed offices for the CIA, the Department of Defense, the Secret Service, and the IRS. Officially, when the North Tower fell, burning debris struck Building 7, which started a fire. As the fire spread, it was intensified by the thousands of gallons of diesel fuel used for the building's generators. 
Before long, Building 7 collapsed. Or perhaps the building had a little help. In a 2002 documentary, Larry Silverstein, a real estate developer who held the building lease, recalled that as Building 7 blazed, he told the FDNY that they should just, quote, pull it. To conspiracy theorists, this was the order to go through with the planned demolition. But three years later, Silverstein clarified his statement. When he said pull it, he meant pull the firefighters to safety. And indeed, firefighters told popular mechanics that the phrase is commonly used to refer to clearing the area. Pull it isn't, on the other hand, a phrase used in demolition. One expert says that type of phrasing would really only make sense for a small building that was structurally pre-cut and ready to be literally pulled down. Building 7 was too large for that kind of demolition. Plus, investigators found no evidence that Building 7 was pre-cut, nor were any explosives discovered among the rubble. All the evidence suggests that Building 7 was an accidental casualty from the collapse of the North Tower. Of course, there's one other variation on this theory to discuss. Some believe that the attack on the Pentagon wasn't the result of an airplane, rather that it was a missile. This theory is partly based on claims that the hijacker who flew the plane into the Pentagon, Hani Hanjour, wasn't skilled enough to pull off such a maneuver. It also takes issue with the size of the impact zone where the plane supposedly hit. The plane was roughly 125 feet wide and 155 feet long, but the point of impact was only 90 feet wide. And at the deepest point of impact inside, the hole was only 16 feet wide. This seems clearly too small for a jetliner. But the facts are a little more complicated than that. For starters, it's impossible to know how wide the impact zone actually was since the Pentagon's facade collapsed less than 20 minutes after impact. 90 feet is just an estimate based on simulations. On top of that, two witnesses claim to have seen the plane's right wing strike a nearby generator, likely ripping it off before it struck the building. If the plane was missing a wing, it would leave a much smaller hole. But that still leaves the issue of the 16-foot hole in the building's interior that's too small to be the nose of a jetliner. You aren't wrong that it's too small for the nose. But according to Mete Sozin, a former professor of civil engineering at Purdue University, parts of the plane disintegrated upon impact. The higher density objects that survived, like landing gear, were launched farther into the building. This isn't just a theory, it's actually confirmed. Not long after the crash, the Surgeon General of the Air Force found the plane's landing gear in the alley near that 16-foot hole. So, not a missile after all. Science is just more complicated than internet conspiracy theorists understand. True or not, theories like the ones above don't just exist on their own. They generally form the basis for more ominous speculation. Perhaps there was more to 9-11 than the government wants us to know. Perhaps it was actually an inside job. Coming up, we'll explore the prejudice fueling 9-11 conspiracy theories. Now, back to the story. 
According to the official story, the September 11th attacks were an attempt to cripple the American economy and government as punishment for the U.S. role in the Middle East throughout the 80s and 90s. But in the years after the attacks, a specific fringe belief emerged that Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda were merely pawns in a bigger game. On the far left, theories arose that 9-11 was used as an excuse for the U.S. to enter more wars in the Middle East. Meanwhile, on the far right, there was a belief that more nefarious forces were behind 9-11. The real masterminds lurked deeper in the shadows. History has seen its share of theories about shadow figures plotting to control the world. The favorites are, of course, the Illuminati, the Freemasons, and in recent decades, the New World Order. The New World Order, or NWO, revolves around a secret cabal seeking to create a single world government. Supposedly, this government would rule with total authority, Think George Orwell's 1984 on a global scale. The NWO theory grew out of Cold War paranoia in the late 20th century. It gained traction among far-right militant groups in the 1990s, specifically thanks to one little sentence from President George H.W. Bush. As the USSR was about to fall, Bush gave a speech to Congress describing a society of cooperation over division. He claimed that out of global cooperation, quote, a new world order could potentially emerge. NWO believers look to political events, both past and present, for evidence supporting the globalist conspiracy. And 9-11 provided plenty of new fodder for their theories. Interestingly, the 9-11 attacks occurred exactly 11 years to the date after Bush Sr.'s new world order speech and it happened while his son, George W. Bush, was in the Oval Office. Theorists believe this was more than a coincidence. There are several theories about who was really responsible for 9-11, but one of the most popular is that 9-11 was actually an inside job. Meaning the Bush administration knew about it well in advance and allowed it to happen, or even helped orchestrate it. We'll examine exactly how much Bush knew beforehand in a later episode. What's more important now is that theorists pointed to events after the attacks as proof of a conspiracy. Six weeks after 9-11, George W. Bush signed the Patriot Act, which expanded law enforcement's ability to surveil both immigrants and civilians. Phone records, Financial records, emails, even library checkout history were now allowed to be viewed by the FBI, CIA, and the NSA. The American intelligence community essentially had the ability to spy on its own citizens on a massive scale, all under the guise of protection. For those who believe the Bushes were involved in the New World Order, it all seems too convenient to be a coincidence. 9-11 was the perfect false flag, an excuse to strip citizens of their liberties and constitutional protections. It was one step closer to a totalitarian government. Of course, there's little to no hard evidence that such a hidden organization ever existed. In fact, journalist Alexander Zaitchik, who's written extensively on fringe conspiracy theories, 
describes the NWO as part of a larger paranoia among the anti-government patriot movement, which gained traction in the 1990s. These believers are convinced that the government is trying to establish a police state and they'll accept any circumstantial evidence as proof. Meanwhile, G. William Domhoff, a professor of sociology and psychology at UC Santa Cruz, notes that a big flaw in a theory like the NWO is the degree of secrecy it would require. Domhoff explains that these conspiracy theorists operate on the assumption that it would be possible to keep secret plans for world domination hidden from the entire country. As he notes, though, even the smallest government scandals are constantly being unveiled by reporters, civil liberties groups, and whistleblowers. As simple as it is, history has shown that no one can keep a secret. If there was a New World Order cabal and multiple recent presidents were involved in it, actual proof probably would have surfaced by now. But that doesn't mean the conspiracy theories aren't on the right track. There were, in fact, people and organizations that were poised to benefit financially from the ramifications of September 11th. Unlike the NWO, some of them were very real and had proven ties to the Bush family. Specifically, there was a private equity firm based in Washington, D.C. that stood to gain hundreds of millions of dollars, the Carlyle Group. Throughout the 1990s, this organization invested in some of the most successful and far-reaching military defense firms throughout the world. And in turn, they attracted some powerful, wealthy families. The list of people tied to Carlisle included three families who faced constant scrutiny in the wake of 9-11 and who may have secretly been in business together since the 1970s. The House of Saud, the Bushes, and the Bin Ladens. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. We'll be back next time with an in-depth look at the Carlyle Group, as well as the redacted 28 pages from a congressional intelligence investigation which may link Saudi Arabia to 9-11. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Joe Guerra, with writing assistance by Mackenzie Moore and Kate Gallagher. Fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Bradley Klein. Conspiracy Theories stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. Carter Roy.